Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. Power blackouts. They happen every year, but guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half day's worth of power to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more. Fueled Human Fuel provides the carbs, protein, fats, fiber, and 27 eventual vitamins and minerals you need, and everything is plant-based. They have a wide range of convenient on-the-go options for someone who wants to eat healthy but doesn't have a ton of time like me and like you, I'm sure. Fuel Power comes in classic flavors like vanilla, chocolate, salted caramel, and more. Just mix it with water and the free shaker you get with your first order and you're good to go. There's also a pre-mix, ready-to-drink option help you save even more time for even more protein, less carbs, and a naturally gluten-free option. There's Huel Black Edition. It's the ultimate human fuel. And Huel's new hot and savory meals are fantastic. They've got mac and cheese, Mexican chili, Thai green curry, and it takes less than five minutes to make. Go to Huel.com slash Donnie to get free shipping on your first order. Plus a shaker and a t-shirt, Huel.com slash Donnie. First time I had a bad tweet that went viral, I didn't want to get out of bed for the weekend. I wanted to hide under the covers. And then you kind of remember, wait, hold on. Who am I? What am I about? What is the purpose of my life? Right? It's like a cheesy question that Mm -hmm. I don't think that many people answer. And if you have those things very clearly in your mind, these are my values. This is what I'm living for. This is what I'm willing to sacrifice for. All of a sudden, everything else becomes much more clear. And you're really able to do things that are perceived as brave. Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the podcast dedicated to a simple premise. Maybe it's not so simple, but it's, it's our premise that everything today is a brand. Every person, uh, every celebrity, every athlete, every company, every product, uh, every movement, every political party is a brand. The brand is a set of values, and we do two things here. Um, we go through our brands of the week, which are kind of the brands, the products, the people, the, the places and things that are kind of driving the zeitgeist and kind of dictating, it's a bad word to use these days, but um, causing uh, the, the world to move in different directions, up and down. We give certain brands up and certain brands down. And we do uh, a big interview with a uh, person about their own personal brand. Today is Barry Weiss. Barry is uh, one of the great young voices today, author, uh, speaks in great detail about anti-Semitism uh, and unjust things in the world. And she's... You, you know her. She's one of Bill Maher's favorites. She's on his show all the time, and she's pretty pretty spectacular. We're excited to have her today. But let's first get to the brands of the week. First brand up is Joe Biden. Uh, brand up. Approval rating jumps to 47% after a State of the Union address. Uh, a new uh, NPR, PBS, Maris News poll uh, has him there. Uh, that's a jump from a 39% approval rating that he had in this in the same poll last month. They've never seen, even after State of the Union, sometimes you get three or four points. They've never seen a jump of eight points that way. Um, and it really has to do with it. Basically, uh, he's more than anything, he's really rising to the moment with Ukraine. I mean, he's had a firm, you know, the sanctions are firm. 
Um, he's had the right tone. Um, he seems to be doing everything right. He he authorized 350 million of military equipment to build you guys such package in U.S. history to bolster Ukraine's fight. Um, he's had countless meetings and phone calls to rally the Western allies. He's acting like a leader, and uh, this could define his presidency. As a matter of fact, a lot of his team team believe this will define his presidency. And you know, when unexpected things happen, unexpected tragedies happen, uh, we we see the way leaders act and. What's really frightening, and, and on the other side of Brand Down is Trump. This will sum up Trump. He, at a speech, he said, he basically made a joke. I assume it's a joke. He said, you should put the Chinese flag on military planes and bomb the shit out of Russia, Trump reported to the crowd. Then we say China did it, and we didn't do it. China did it, and then we start, we let them fight each other, and we sit back and we watch. Now, there are two scary things about that. Number one, that if it is a joke, that he's joking that way. And the scary thing is that this, this guy's probably, might not even be a joke. And, you know, we should be very, very, very grateful right now that he is not president. His, his instability, um, his materialness, uh, I can't even, him trying to insert himself in there in a way that could be destructive. Just imagine, I don't care which side you come on. Imagine Donald Trump is president right now with what's going on. When you need both, on the one hand, a firm, heavy, guiding hand, but somebody who understands diplomacy at the same time. And uh, certainly not Donald Trump. Brand up to Fox News security correspondent Jennifer Griffin. Um, she's been challenging a lot of Fox people on the air, a lot of um, people coming on retired U.S. Army colonels. Uh, she's correcting on the air various Fox analysts, people who are just saying untruths on the air. And, and you know, it's seen as being brave to be Fox to speak the truth, but she's doing it, and um, we salute Jennifer Griffin. Brand up for Ukraine's army. They're using a game-changing drone called the Punisher. And basically, these are drones that um, can carry uh, three kilograms of explosives, hit targets up to 30 miles behind enemy lines, uh, the cheapest and easiest way to deliver a punch from a long distance. Electronic drones have a seven and a half foot wingspan and can fly for hours at 1,300 feet and need only coordinated with their targets so they can carry out the mission automatically. And it's, you know, this is a great underdog way to fight. They don't have, and surprising that the, the Russians' uh, air power has been so unimpressive but these drones are really, really making these, what they're called Punisher drones, are really, really making a difference. Brand up to Airnub, Air, Airnub, Air, Airbnb uh, in the Ukraine. It's really interesting. This is a way that people are getting money to the Ukrainians. They are, between, on March 2nd and March 3rd, guests from around the world booked more than 60,000 nights in Ukraine, according to an Airbnb spokesman. And most of the people obviously are not going there. I don't even think they can go there if they wanted to go there. But that's just a way to get money to the Ukrainian people. And, you know, I love when people are kind of just helping in very, very inventive, creative ways. And uh, once again, go rent an Airbnb in Ukraine. It's a way to get money to families there. Brand down for two stupid senators, uh, Mark Rubo, Mark, Marco Rubio and Steve Daines. They got a backlash for sharing photos of Zelensky on social media after being asked to protect his safety. Uh, some top lawmakers, including these two, met with Zelensky on a Zoom call, and they obviously shared images of where it was to give, somehow would give away where he was. Just not very clever. Uh, so Senator Marco Rubio, Steve Daines, uh, job uh, brand down. Labor market. Uh, February jobs report rose a surprising 678,000. Unemployed edged lower than, than before. The rate was 3.8% uh, of joblessness. That's, of course, a all-time low. And look, you know, the, the things are tough in this country with inflation and the, the um, uh, war is really pummeling the stock market. Stock market's down, I think, 15, maybe even more, 15% this year uh, for obvious reasons. But the labor market is strong. Brand down for Trump's border wall. Trump's border wall has been breached more than 3,000 times by smugglers. Um, the government spent $2.6 to repair the breaches during 2019 to 2021. CPP record, records show uh, his wall is being bridged. His big, his big thing is walls, not very strong, just like Trump himself. George Will brand up a great, uh, obviously one of the great calmness of all time. Uh, a conservative icon tortures Trump as a stray orange hair to be flicked off the nation's sleeve. Uh, he, he just he said, Will, who quit the GOP in 2016, he sees the, the president's power and influence uh, sliding down and he gives about seven seven candidates that Trump has backed or gotten behind or talked to run in elections who are either way behind or have already lost. Uh, and Trump, I, I, you know, I go back and forth. Depends on the week you listen to me on the show. Sometimes I'm like, 
his grip is as strong as ever and he's going to run and he might win again. And other times I see numbers and, and my gut tells me it's, it's waning. And I don't know. Um, we're going to have to continue to do our brands for the week <laughs> to see what the latest is. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a big question mark at this point. Uh, and, you know, what happens also is somebody needs to fill the void. Now, I know people talk about Ron DeSantis, but uh, still has not challenged Trump for kind of in any way in any of the numbers to show as far as a candidacy for the can- for a Republican uh, presidential candidate. So we will see. Brand, I'm not sure for former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Um, he's reemerging. He's blaming the cancel culture for his fall. He's running a very, they're very effective ads in New York City, basically saying that he was found innocent uh, and that they basically the, the American, the New Yorkers lost a, a great public servant because of cancel culture. And it all, you have various news outlets. They he reruns clips saying he, they didn't file charges. They didn't file charges. They found him innocent. That's the legal point of view. But he was ridden from office for claims that were made that were not necessarily against the law, but were not, were indecent for a public official. Uh, obviously, some were against law, him physically, you know, grabbing a woman. But there were other, in, um, what I'll call indiscretions, I don't mean to minimize, but certainly things that were done wrong as far as it came to relationships with women, making women feel a certain way. And it doesn't address that. It addresses the pure legal aspect of it. And uh, so we'll see what that, we'll see that. I mean, I salute the effort. I have a feeling we haven't heard the last from Andrew Cuomo. Brand down for Florida. There's a Florida uh, bill that says don't say, it's called the don't, don't Say Gay Bill. Under the bill, primary school teachers in Florida will be prohibited from discussing LGBTQ topics and their students. Uh, if you want to go online, go see Kate McKinnon, who's openly gay. Uh, say openly gay, she's gay. That's shouldn't say openly gay. Um, who went on Saturday Night Live and really mocked this. It was really impressive to see her passion, her anger, her wit all come together to kind of skewer this thing. Brand up for Google, telling employees in the Bay Area and other locations, got to return to offices in April. Anybody who listens to the show knows I feel very strongly about that. And right now, there's no reason anybody should not be in an office. Uh, mass mandates have been lifted uh, pretty much everywhere. Uh, vaccine passports. Uh, it's time for everybody to get back to work. But the problem, and I've talked about this on the show, is that, um, you know, a lot of people have gotten used to work from home. And because of labor shortages, employers are not in a position to kind of, you know, use an a iron hand, so to speak, to mandate certain things. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Huge brand up for Coach K, Coach Mike Krzyzewski, who's retiring. Uh, this will be his last season. Obviously, they'll go into the tournament, but they played their last game at uh, Cameron against North Carolina. They unfortunately lost, but 90 of his former players uh, turned up. And just as a sports fan, what a joy to watch this guy over the year. I mean, just pure class. Uh, you, you, I, I was always a Duke fan because of Coach K. And I can't think of a sports figure in our time, coach, sports figure, athlete, any owner, anything, that has set a better example for a team, for a sport, than Mike Krzyzewski, than for Duke and for the NCAA. So uh, we're going to miss me 75, uh, coach for 42 years, but... He's as good as it gets. He is the GOAT, no question about that. As far, I think as far as all coaches anywhere, when you look at both his record, I think he's won four NCAA titles. Now, there are, there are guys that have won more, um, you know, obviously Phil Jackson uh, and, and uh, Red Orbach. But uh, it, it's the way he molded young men, and, you know, you never saw Duke guys getting into trouble. It was interesting. I don't know if that's because he, ahead of time, weeded out guys. He, if you weren't a high-character guy, you didn't get to play at Duke. But uh, there's a certain badge of honor with that. Uh, big brand up for Batman. Batman scores $128 million, uh, in the box office. Second biggest box office opening since the pandemic. Um, second, That was second only to Spider-Man. So Spider-Man beat Batman in an opening. But still, big brand up uh, for Batman. Academy Awards. I don't know if this is a brand up or brand down. As a viewer, it's a brand up for me. Yet ABC threatened to cancel the Oscars if certain categories were not cut. You know, they've been dropping uh, ratings on the show uh, and they cut certain categories, which nobody likes sitting through. Documentary short, film editing, makeup, hairstyling, original score, production design, animated short, live action short, and sound. Not that these all aren't critical, 
but now they'll be awarded at a lot of the, at the, there's always a, another award show that's not televised that handles a little of the less glamorous categories. But I think that's a better idea. It'll give them more time. It'll shorten the show from three hours to maybe two and a half hours and maybe give them more time to do certain entertaining type things. Uh, it's going to be, I think, very challenging this year because there aren't a lot of big movies. There's The Power of the Dog, Licorice Pizza, Dune, uh, I, movies that I've heard very little about. I, I mean, I went through the list of, I think it's eight now. And, um, you know, I go back to certain years. I remember the year that Rocky won. I remember the year Rocky won, 1976. And I, I think that... The five pictures were Rocky, Network, All the President's Men. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, five iconic movies like that, that um, you don't get that today. Because obviously movies are in a very different place. You don't get five iconic movies done in any year at any point. You get big box office, tentpole, uh, superhero movies, and then a bunch of smaller movies, and those days are done. Brand up for Pigs. Um, pigs will save thousands of human lives through organ transplant. Dr. Robert Montgomery made history last September when he became the first surgeon to transplant a pig kidney into a living person. Um, it's basically, and the patient's alive today only because of that. It's called xenotransplantation, which is the medical term for implanting other species, organs, and tissues into humans. They soon became the norm. Uh, it's great news. Uh, so pigs are going to be saving a lot of human lives. And a, a brand up, for Royal Caribbean Wonder of the Seas. It's a cruise ship five times the size of the Titanic. Get this. It's got 19 swimming pools, 20 restaurants, 11 bars, an ice rink casino, even its own Central Park. It can hold close to 7,000 passengers and 2,300 crew members. So this is a boat that holds 10,000 people. I don't know, do you want to be on a boat with 10,000 people? But, you know, it's the biggest, and you got to give people credit when they get the biggest. So there you go. And those are our brands of the week. Okay, I want to talk to you about Chime. Kick off 2022 with a better checking account with no monthly fees. I'm going to say that again. A checking account with no monthly fees. Chime, an award-winning app and debit card, has no overdraft fees, foreign transaction fees, monthly fees, or service fees. With over 60,000 fee-free in-network ATMs at many locations, like most Walgreens, 7-Eleven, CVS, where you can access your money when you need it, when you need it. You can also send money to anyone, even if you aren't on Chime, Fee-free for you and no cash-out fees for them. Make your first good decision of the new year and join over 10 million people using Chime. Sign-up takes only two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started on Chime.com slash Donnie. That's Chime.com slash Donnie. You want to save money? This is it. Chime is the way to go. Banking services provided and debit card issued by the Bank Corp or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC, get fee-free transactions at any money pass ATM in a 7-Eleven location and at All Point or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Otherwise, out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Sometimes pay anyone instant transfers can be delayed. The recipient must use a valid debit card or be a Chime member to claim funds. I want to talk about Mint Mobile. And this makes sense for everybody if you want to save money. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals this year, why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for wireless? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting at just 15 bucks a month. You could save a lot of money. I, I mean, this is a no-brainer to not to do. People looking for extra savings, they offer premium wireless, like I said, 15 bucks a month. By going online and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data, delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with Mint Mobile and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. With Mint, you choose the amount of monthly data that's right for you and stop paying for data you never use. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plans shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash Donnie. That's mintmobile.com slash Donnie. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month mintmobile.com slash Don. I am thrilled with today's guest. Uh, Barry Weiss has become one of the most important voices in media in our culture today. Um, she tells the truth. Uh, she, we live in this tribal world right now where everybody seems to be in certain lanes and she recognizes that the world 
is not always clearly two different lanes and there is a lane in between. Um, she was in the Wall Street Journal. She was an op-ed and book review editor from at the age of 23. Uh, she was in the New York Times, an op-ed staff editor and writer on culture and politics in New York Times. She bravely resigned. And we're going to talk about that because that's a, little, a lot of framing of who Barry is and, and, and how she launched today. Um, her best-selling book, which we're going to obviously cover, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, was the winner of the 2019 National Jewish Book Award. Her Weiss podcast, Honestly with Barry Weiss, is a huge hit. Um, her Weiss newsletter, Common Sense on Substack, has already got 150,000 followers. She's building a media empire. Um, <laughs> she's a frequent guest on Bill Maher. Bill Maher has found major love with her. Um, and her website describes her as uncancelable, unknown, unowned, free, and fearless. And I'm thrilled. I'm a big Barry Weiss fan. Thanks for coming on today. Donnie, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. So I, I start this podcast because this podcast is on the premise that everybody and everything is a brand today. What's the Barry Weiss brand? Well, I hope it's some of the words that you just said. Those are the things that I, <laughs> you know, I'm a big believer in saying what you want to aspire to publicly so that you kind of hold yourself to account. I had never run a, a mile 10 years ago. And then I told everyone in the world I was going to run the New York City Marathon. And somehow I did it because I had sort of declared it. And so those words that you said, you know, free and fearless, liberated, I might add, um, authentic. Those are the things that I'm striving to be. Um, I think that there's kind of two piles, if you could say it that way, in the media landscape right now. One is the old legacy institutions that still have the fancy brand names and are still sort of clinging to the prestige. But increasingly, people see that they are not the thing that they claim to be. Um, and that's just more and more transparent to people. And then there's this world, you know, let's just say it's dominated by Joe Rogan, but it's the podcasting world. It's the newsletter world. It's the new media world. It's the streamers. And like, that is the maverick world. And the thing that's exciting about the maverick world is that it feels transparent and authentic, maybe a little dangerous, um, but it sort of lacks the gatekeeping of the old world. And I think what I'm trying to do is be the sort of best of both. I'm trying to be the prestige end of Maverick, if that makes sense. Um, trying to sort of meld the best parts of the things that we love about the new podcast world, um, but with the kind of standards and fact-checking and quality that we used to be, that we used to expect when we picked up a paper like the New York Times. Yeah, I, I, I want to start with the Times only because it's, it's so defining of your launch and, and what is... I don't say wrong with legacy media, as you called it, but certainly limiting. Um, here you have the greatest platform in the entire world, New York Times, uh, opinion writer, and pick it up from there. Sure. I mean, I had come to the New York Times from the Wall Street Journal. I had been at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, famously conservative editorial page, and I was the left-wing squish in that context. Um, and I always really liked it, though. I think I am someone that is fundamentally comfortable being in a disagreeable position with other people around me. I find it really fun. My dad's a conservative. My mom's a liberal. We were always arguing politics in my house. Mm -hmm. Make a very, very long story short, Donald Trump, may have heard of him, becomes the candidate, then becomes the nominee, then becomes the president. And the same kind of ongoing, frankly, civil war that happened inside the conservative movement and the Republican Party happened inside the Wall Street Journal editorial page. And just like lots of people left the conservative movement or the Republican Party inside the Wall Street Journal, a lot of people sort of went packing after, um, after Trump won the, won the presidency. At the very same time, the New York Times was going through a really important and very brief but important soul-searching moment. Everyone will remember the night of the election that the infamous needle had Hillary Clinton winning by 99%. You know, and yet my mother, who drives, I'm from Pittsburgh, drives two hours outside of Pittsburgh for her work in a flooring business, would call me and say, I don't know what you're reading. This guy is going to win. I've never seen grassroots enthusiasm like this. Entire barns are painted over with his name. Yeah. So how was it that my mom knew sort of more about where the country was headed than the New York Times. And the New York Times, I think, you know, to their credit, saw the fact that, you know, their job is to sort of hold up a mirror to the world as it is. They were failing at that job. And so I was brought in, Brett Stevens was brought in. We were intellectual diversity hires, I mean, quite bluntly. And um, that was explicit. My job was to write and also especially commission pieces that wouldn't naturally 
feel like they had a home in the pages of the New York Times. And our job was to sort of not just give our readers the warm ideological baths that they were used to um, and reflecting all the views that they would hear, you know, on the Upper West Side, uh, but to expose them to different perspectives. You know, again, compressing a few years into a few sentences, in the time that I was there, walked in the first day, could not believe my life. I couldn't believe that I was getting to work at the New York Times. And my grandparents have been, you know, forever subscribers. Like they got, they got hats, like they were so proud. Sure. And, and I walked in and, you know, I wasn't the popular kid, but I was okay with that. And I was okay with that, Donnie, for the exact same reason you introduced this question, which was, holy shit, this is the biggest platform in the world. And so what if I'm not invited to sit at the cool kids table in the cafeteria? I'm going to use this platform. I'm going to juice it for everything that I can. And I think I really did. Um, what changed... Um, and I think this is going to be remembered as a, you know, it's not about the New York Times. This is a historic institutional change, cultural change, maybe even a kind of soft cultural revolution that we're living through was, you know, everything sort of started heating up uh, between COVID, Black Lives Matter, the summer of 2020. And it sort of culminated in the Times' decision to run an op-ed by Republican Senator Tom Cotton. The column, which hopefully people will remember, called for the National Guard to put down violent rioting, not peaceful protesting. Not all of the nuance was lost. 800 members of the New York Times, maybe more, my coworkers basically said that this op-ed literally puts bl- Black lives in danger and literally puts the lives of our Black colleagues more specifically in danger. And rather than the, you know, the management, the publisher saying to those employees, sorry, you know, if you think an op-ed by a sitting Republican senator literally causes physical harm, then maybe journalism isn't the right career path for you. Instead, it was the same thing that we're seeing now at Spotify, the same thing that we're seeing in a dozen institutions we can name, a kind of bending of the knee. And I sort of had a choice to make, you know, stay, cling to the prestige, you know, and get to tell people that I work at the New York Times, which frankly still is an exciting thing, Mm -hmm. or leave and leave to fulfill the reasons that I became a journalist to begin with, which was to pursue my curiosity. And, you know, I wrote this in my resignation letter, but it really was the case that curiosity itself was a liability at the New York Times. It, it, it put a target on your back if you were curious about the wrong kinds of things. And I should add that my now wife, who was then my colleague, she was a business and tech reporter at the Times, felt that exact same pressure as well. She ended up leaving about a year after I did and now is involved in building this company with me. So there's basically in at the New York Times, this is not to shit on the New York Times because it's a great institution. I, and I know you feel that way. But that things such as saying that there were nuances in the Me Too movement or, th- you know, the Ansari thing and that uh, things like that, it's just if it doesn't fall into that traditional liberal, up as you said, Upper West Side view of things, they don't want a part of it. Right. I mean, the thing that I would dispute about that is like, I'm a traditional liberal. I'm a traditional liberal because I believe in judging people based on their what is a, character. What is a liberal? What is a liberal? What is a liberal? A liberal is someone foundationally who believes that we should, that everyone is created with equal dignity and that the lane of your birth does not determine um, who you are in the world, what you can become in the world, whether or not you are sort of born into oppressor or oppressed status. That is a liberal. A liberal is someone who believes that politics is an important part of life, but that not everything in life should be put to a kind of totalitarian litmus test. And in fact, the most important things in life, like relationships, like love, like art, like music, like friendships, fall outside of the realm of politics. And that is a beautiful thing. And the fact that, you know, the fact that we judge people according to their character and their deed and not based on the sins of their parents. A liberal is someone that believes in redemption, that believes in second chances, that doesn't believe that a mistake should, or, or, or being adjacent to someone that's made a mistake should smear you forever. And a liberal is someone that doesn't believe in guilt by association, right? I could go on and on and on. These are the things that are now sort of being lost to this deeply illiberal movement that comes cloaked to us in the language of social justice and of progress and is anything but. And what's the concern? I see you as a, as a radical centrist. I mean, that's just my take on you. Um, what's a conservative? You know, it's a hard, that's actually a harder one to answer because a lot of people right now call me a conservative. 
And I'm like, well, if a conservative wants to conserve liberalism, then I guess I am a conservative now, but I'm also a gay woman who is socially liberal. And if I take all these online surveys to, you know, go down all the policies, I always come out on the center left. But right now, you know, all of these terms are kind of jumbled and up for grabs because the people who are supposed to stand for liberal views often aren't. And the the people who are supposed to believe in, you know, conserving things are frankly often right now in, in our society revolutionaries. And so for me, I've sort of stopped trying to label myself. I don't care what anyone else wants to label me. I know the kind of values that I believe in. I know the kind of values that drove me to career in journalism. And those are my North Stars. Labels, political labels, I don't care anymore. And I don't think most Americans do either, frankly. Okay, I want to talk to you about Hugo. You ever wake up, get going, and you're all of a sudden, it's mid-morning, late morning, and you realize you haven't eaten and you need energy. You don't want to go through some dry fast food drive through That's why I have Huel. Huel's human fuel provides the carbs, protein, fats, fiber, and 27 eventual vitamins and minerals you need, and everything is plant-based. They have a wide range of convenient on-the-go options for someone who wants to eat healthy but doesn't have a ton of time like me and like you, I'm sure. Huel Power comes in classic flavors like vanilla, chocolate, salted caramel, and more. Just mix it with water in the free shaker you get with your first order and you're good to go. There's also a pre-mix, ready-to-drink option help you save even more time for even more protein, less carbs, and a naturally gluten-free option. There's Huel Black Edition. It's the ultimate human fuel. And Huel's new hot and savory meals are fantastic. They've got mac and cheese, Mexican chili, Thai green curry, and a few others you have to try. It takes less than five minutes to make. It's really great stuff. It tastes great. It gives you energy. It's healthy. It's plant-based. It's great stuff. Huel is proof that fast food can be good food. I love it, and you will too. And right now, you can get free shipping on your first order, plus a shaker and free T-shirt. Go to Huel.com slash Donnie. That's H-U-E-L.com slash Donnie to get free shipping on your first order, plus a shaker and a T-shirt. Huel.com slash Donnie. Power blackouts. They happen every year. But guess what, blackouts? You've met your match. Say hello to Goal Zero, the leader in affordable home power backup systems and solar generators. Goal Zero's generators power your fridge, freezer, lights, Wi-Fi, TV, and more with clean power. Their home backup systems, like the Yeti 3000X, have no fuel, no fumes, no noise, and no maintenance. Just good, clean energy that keeps your home up and running. They offer a range of products and affordable price points, from power stations that can provide a half day's worth of power to solar generators and home backup systems that can keep you powered for one, two, or three days. Plus, they're all portable, so you can take your power with you when you go camping, tailgating, and more. So yeah, take that, blackouts. Our power is here to stay. Have peace of mind when blackouts hit. Go to GoalZero.com to learn more. A good framing of understanding you is like is you brought up Joe Rogan, and here, of course, Joe Rogan is as has been criticized. A lot. I mean, he's got a huge audience, criticized for uh, misinformation on vaccines. Uh, most recently, very controversial that there was a mashup of he's used the N word and over a dozen times over the years, and a lot of artists obviously have left, and Spotify is under pressure. And where where are you if you are right now going to say, okay, here's what I think should happen as a result of what has happened with Joe Rogan. What, what's your take on that? Because I think it's a good demonstration of your hybrid view on things. I would rewind the clock um, and basically say to the CEO of Spotify and to Rogan, hold the line. You have to hold the line because unfortunately, and I wish this wasn't the case, we live in a merciless culture in which apologizing for things is not seen as a way of making amends. It is seen as a confession of guilt. It is the rope with which other people are going to hang you. And unfortunately, apologies right now in this environment, not in, not, not in every part of American life, but in the context of a place like Spotify or the New York Times becomes a way of saying, aha, look, they are the bad thing we claimed they were, and now we're gonna push them out the door. And that's my fear um, because Joe Rogan is a friend. He's a fantastic person, and he's a he's a good person, which is why he wants to apologize for things that he regrets. That is a humane 
menschy, I would say, good impulse that we should cultivate. Sam Harris has an excellent podcast up called um, Joe Rogan and the Ethics of Apology, which you know I pretty much agree with every word. The unfortunate reality is if you need, if you look at things just from a hardcore realist perspective, we have seen over and over again how these things play out. What's going to happen next, right? So here's what's happened at Spotify. Joe Rogan's apologized twice. And the CEO of Spotify has basically announced, you know, woke indulgences. He's going to pay $100 million to a certain kinds of charities that lift up marginalized groups. They're going to add a kind of parental, a new version of a parental advisory boarding. Well, okay. What's going to happen next when there's a mashup of the word dyke or the word tranny or the word, pick any word. I'm sure that exists, but it also exists. And this is the insane double standard for a hundred million other people who are on that platform right now. And so the cynical view, and I, I, I honestly don't even think it's so cynical. It's, you know, this is a targeted attack against someone who, you know, is in many ways progressive. I mean, people remember I was on with him when I asked him, who are you going to vote for in the primary? And he said, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders immediately cut that into a campaign ad. I was in a Bernie Sanders campaign ad, which is hilarious. But the point is, Joe Rogan is like so many Americans, someone who doesn't fit into the political boxes, someone who is super progressive on a host of of a number of issues, but who simply does not adhere to every single tiny aspect of the ever-increasing list of the new woke orthodoxy. And that is his sin, right? His sin, because you'll notice, I'll just add one thing. These people are not typically going after, you know, I know Rush isn't around anymore, but the Michael Savages or the Marks, the people who are on talk radio who are actually on the right. They're going after the people who walk into their sort of sacred safe space cathedrals and don't agree with every aspect of what they view as the new orthodoxy. And that's the problem. And that's why they don't like Rogan. So the other side of the argument is he used the N word and did it serially. It wasn't, you know, a slip of the tongue and whatnot. And so then is that word okay in our culture? I've never used that word. I've never used Uh, the word either. I I do not think it's okay to use. um, But Again, if we're going to use that standard and force everyone who's an artist on Spotify, podcaster, or musician to apologize, there's not going to be a lot of people left on Spotify. I mean, that that's where the hypocrisy is just outrageous to me. And, um, and, and it's hard to see it as anything other than a political hit job. Would you feel the same way? I'm, I'm going to say the word, it's a horrible word, if he used kike for the last, um, you know, 10 years in different in- instances. Because that show, the word is about hate and the word is about anti-Semitism, just like the word, the N-word is about um, racism and hate also. So does does it feel any different for you? I don't think there's an excuse for using those words. And I think the reason Joe Rogan apologized is because he feels regret about using those words. And, you know, the best person to ask that question of are his guests, you know, people like Coleman Hughes who are out defending him right now. People like Melissa Chen. People, I mean, ask anyone who knows him. Like, yeah. this person is just simply not a racist. He's not. He's not an anti-Semite. He says lots of things that I disagree with. And like I said, he apologized because he because the, using that word is embarrassing and because I think he regrets it. So somebody but also, it, he, when he made the comparison to a, a black community and said it was Planet of the Apes, how is somebody not racist? And by the way, I'm not saying Joe Rogan should be thrown off the air. But how do you how do you then say, well, that's not a racist? I mean, it's a demonstration of a thought, of a of a, a, th- a cognitive thought process to compare uh, African Americans to apes. Um, so then you go, but he's not a racist. So what? How do we how do we square that? Well, first of all, I don't know that specific clip that you're referring to, right. um, but I know that lots of people have been taking lots of things out of context. Right. And I know that, you know, I hope I haven't presented that out of context. I mean, I've read that in in numerous instances. I honestly don't know. Here's what I know. Howard Stern, who I love and I'm a huge fan of, has worn blackface. Right. Okay. Justin Trudeau, many times, has worn big fan of blackface. Why is the conversation only about Joe Rogan? That's what you have to ask yourself. Yeah. And the reason is political. That's the reason. And it's... 
hugely documented. I mean, there's a pack called, I think it's called Midas Touch. It's spelled differently. Mm-hmm. It has an E in there that has like created this whole brouhaha, has made this clip. Why have they done it? Well, they pride themselves on on taking people down. That's what they do. So I think it's just like, there's no excuse for using the, the word. I don't use it. Um, I don't use any of the other words that I just said on this podcast as, as examples. Um, but there are people in public life that have done equivalent or worse things who are, com- who are never asked about it and are completely excused for. And the reason, Donnie, is politics. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's, all, that's the whole thing. You, you've been, and I, and I so appreciate this, that you have been, uh, uh, and particularly it's counter to your age, because I find the younger the woman, the more there is no new, and I'm generalizing, there is no nuance in the Me Too movement. I, I find generationally, the older a woman is, there's more of a capability of seeing the nuance. And you, you uh, when Ansari, Aziz Ansari was accused of, of uh, inappropriate behavior by an anonymous woman, you bravely came out and said, well, maybe it was just bad sex. And talk to me about that. I think that was the first piece I had, I'd written a lot of pieces before and edited a lot, but that was the first piece I wrote that I think went like well and truly viral. Um, I think it was called Aziz Ansari is guilty of not being a mind reader. Right. And I was basically suggesting that, you know, a movement that genuinely wants to make make sexual assault and workplace harassment and all of the good core things that Me Too is about is going to fail if it collapses the category of what we consider like true, truly more morally depraved behavior. Mm-hmm. And if a bad date is sort of being collapsed into the same category as sexual assault and rape, well then like you are draining the idea of and and the the radioactivity mm-hmm. that that accusation ought to have by grouping it in with things like Aziz Ansari and you know in retrospect i think that that piece was you know it, a lot of people were really really angry about that piece but i think if you ask most people now they would say oh yeah of course yeah yeah let's let's jump into probably the most important thing when we talk about anti-semitism about your book and and it was interesting you recently spoke at duke and you laid out what I was so fascinated with you taking. And, and you said, to understand anti-Semitism, one has to see it as a conspiracy theory in which Jews play the starring role, whatever a given civilization, culture, society, or institution defines as most detestable qualities. And then you made distinctions between anti-Semitism from the far right and the far left. The former sees Jews as the greatest trick the devil has ever played. And the latter whitewashes Jewish history and considers Jews as adjacent to white supremacy and loyal to the last standing bastion of white colonialism. Uh, in the Middle East, um, and you think the, the far right is more lethal, but um, give me your take on why right now more than ever uh, you believe anti—I not to believe it is—anti-Semitism is 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 it a I don't want to say it is zenith, but is on a frightening rise. Yeah, not at a zenith because it, yes. as history shows us, Obviously. it can always get worse. The reason that I think anti-Semitism is on the rise is for the same reason that I think people are attracted to conspiracy theories like QAnon. In times, and history has shown this, anyone who studied Jewish history will know this, in times of transformative change, in times where people feel disempowered or confused or angry or looking for a scapegoat, it's not very far from that kind of um, rising sentiment and pointing the finger at Jews and suggesting that Jews are the secret hand that control the world or suggesting that Jews are sort of behind whatever the sin is of the day. What I think is um, alarming right now and maybe perhaps unique to the American context is to, is to respond to what you were reading before in that passage, which is we live in this very strange time where the sort of lens with which we understand things in America is the lens of race and American racial politics. And so on the one hand, Jews are being targeted by white supremacists and by neo-Nazis. You know, I was bat mitzvahed in the synagogue in Pittsburgh at Tree of Life, where, you know, a white supremacist walked in. And the reason that he selected that particular synagogue was because 
the previous week, it had participated in refugee Shabbat, right? In, in a Sabbath sort of elevating refugees and welcoming the stranger, right? Because that is the Jewish mm-hmm. idea that we were strangers in the land of Egypt and we know how it feels. And so we welcome the stranger. That is why he chose Tree of Life, you know, and he chose them. He chose it because he believed in this idea that the Jews are appearing to be white. And yet look at them. They're loyal to the black people and the brown people and the Muslims mm-hmm. that are sort of sullying in their view, true white, pure America. And in the very same moment, you have a far left that suggests of us that we are kind of um, fake victims, that we pretend to be a minority. But look at us. Look how successful we've yeah. been. Look how much power that we've been, been managed to accrue. And so, you know, we benefit from the two sins that they, that sort of, I would say, the modern progressive left sees as the gravest of all. We benefit from, you know, being adjacent to or benefiting from white supremacy because we can pass. And we're also, you know, benefiting from, you know, evil colonialist white imperialism, which in their completely ahistorical view um, sums up the history of the state of Israel. I, I so passionately agree with what you, you've said about Jews and Donald Trump. I, I, I found to me, and so many Jewish friends I have, I'm embarrassed to say, first time around, voted for Trump. And what we like is policies and he's good to Israel. And my argument was always his entire presidency is built on creating another. I mean, he just, it's a dictator's playbook. It's Hitler's playbook. I mean, if you just, it's, it's diluting the truth. It's creating an other, whether it's a brown person, a Jewish person, he wasn't doing it with Jews, Muslims. And we, as a group, as Jews who have suffered through history as being designated as the other, how do you side with a man, even if you like his tax policies, and even if he's got a good policy towards Israel, how can you not see that parallel? And how can you be, I don't say how can you be a Jew and vote for Trump, but how can you, how can you put those two things in a box together? Well, I've spoken about this at length, and I think probably most passionately on Bill Maher, the, the Friday night after the shooting at Tree of Life, um, and my sense that, you know, this movement that is sort of, allergic to truth, um, even if there are great policies in the Middle East, which there were, um, would ultimately be a dangerous one for Jews. When I think, though, about why some of my, you know, co-religionists voted for Trump or just lots of people I know did, I think part of it is the sense that there, there is no, like, safety really in in what the democratic party is becoming either they are mm-hmm. also in different language and not as crude line, language yes. in, engaging in a politics that suggests and this is what's in common with both of them engaging in a politics that divides americans um that suggests that some americans are sort of more rightful heirs than others right and on the right you have language that we're used to sniffing out as being dangerous. And on the left, it is, it is again, like coming in really attractive clothing, but it in fact is the mirror image of it. And so that's my fear is I feel like we are living in an America now where like both of the choices are, are bad choices. And the thing you referred to before is like radical centrism is, is really, really hard to find. that's why I think certain politicians, like, for example, Richie Torres, who just did TV with the other day, um, Jared Polis in Colorado, like there are, like, I think it's very important to elevate those out there who are trying to uphold what you refer to as radical center. How do we, how do we, we are such a divided and tribal society right now in this country. And because of this, I'm holding up for people, I'm holding up my smartphone or my iPhone, where people can create their bespoke news universe. And we know it. We don't have to do chapter and verse and how so many people get, half the people in the world get their news from Facebook. And you can't put that genie back in the bottle. So how do we somehow, when the, our biggest issue right now is how divided and the, 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 the ignorant hate on both sides, when people can create bespoke media, 
How, how, what's what's the solution? You can't you, 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 when you have a Facebook and and we know the algorithms that the more outrageous it is, the more polarizing it is, the more read it, the more eyeballs you get, and it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. So, how do we wrestle with that? And how do we when the truth is under such siege as as we've talked about? What's give me you you are the czar of social media now? Okay, you are, you have now instead of a bunch of congressmen. You can, you have the ability, you understand the platforms out there and you, you laid out at the beginning of the show the, the maverick platforms and the pluses that come with that, and there, but there are also minuses. What do we do about that? I know what we don't do about that. And what we don't do about that is decide with a heavy handed, with a heavy hand, you know, that we as Congressman X know better about what misinformation is than everybody else. Recall not a year ago, that if you suggested that the virus that we've all, the pandemic that we've all been living through for the past now three years leaked from a lab in Wuhan, you were considered equivalent Mm -hmm. of QAnon. You were kicked off of social media platforms. So things that start off as being misinformation sometimes actually turn out to be true and turn out to be reality. Again, this comes back to what is a liberal? A liberal is someone who generally believes that the answer to bad speech is more speech. And that the way that we come at truth is not from on high, but through a very passionate, sometimes vociferous debate in which we arrive at truth. It's not a destination that is already foreordained. And that is the thing that is really chilling to me. The notion that sort of in the name of, you know, pure information or in the name of, in the name of truth, I mean, that's what they say that the way that we're going to get there is by kicking off all of these people off of social media platforms, which social media platforms, yeah, okay, they can say they're a private company, sure. They're the public square. This is the new public square. And if you kick someone off, you know, all of the platforms, you've essentially, you know, sent them into exile in American public life. And the idea that there's like no humility about that, knowing that even in the past two and a half years with the pandemic, the things that started off as misinformation are now accepted as probably true. So any solution that suggests that the way to solve this problem is by giving people the boot is one that I am automatically allergic to. So then what's the answer? There, there's a, there's a, on Facebook, let's, let's do a hypothetical and it's not being policed and there's a, a Nazi website that's suggesting, you know, the extermination of Jews and, and anything else that you would lovely you would find on a Nazi website. Is that is that part of the town square and we leave that alone? What what what's and and who becomes the police at that point? I mean, this is kind of the the conundrum. Well, I don't run Facebook and I don't run Twitter and I'm as, as anyone who knows me can attest, I'm sort of uh ignorant right. about technology, you broadly speaking. But my understanding is that, you know, there are, of course, limits on free speech in the yes. public square. Well, you cannot yell theater, fire in a crowded theater. And so there needs to be a clear understanding of what that equivalent is on the new public square, which is digital, right? So there are things that are obvious incitement that shouldn't be there, of course. The problem is, is right now you have just an ab- you have an incredible mm-hmm. overreach where there are people who have, Donnie, been kicked off of Twitter permanently for misgendering someone. This is what we've learned, right? This was like headline experience of the New York Times, headline experience of the Trump administration, headline experience of everything over the past few years. Institutions are just people. And if you, if the people inside an institution no longer believe the motto, no longer believe in the vision, no longer believe in the mission that the institution stands for, that mission's, that institution's going to change. That's the story of the New York Times. That was the story of, you know, that's the story of any number of media companies we can point to and universities, we can go on and on and on. And so the point is, if I know that the people who are making that decision, who are the sort of truth czar inside Facebook, are 27, 28, 29, 30-year-old employees who believe that hate speech is to misgender someone who believe that hate speech is to suggest that there is there are differences between men and women. Well, then I'm not going to feel comfortable saying, yes, Facebook, yes, I can trust you to discern what is fire in a crowded theater and what isn't because they have a radically different understanding of what harm is, of what safety is, of what violence is. 
These are people who don't believe that violence is violence. They believe that speech is violence. They believe that, as I learned at the New York Times, that a op-ed from a Republican senator was actual violence. And I'm not sure people, you know, of the older generation understand what an unbelievable transformation that this is. Yeah. You you mentioned COVID and you very um, uh, controversially, and so much so much you do, came and said, I think it was on Bill Maher, you said, COVID, I'm over COVID. On the same day that 3,000 some more people still were dying of COVID. And so talk to me about being over COVID and answering that other flip side of the equation. What do you mean we're over COVID and there's, there's thousands of people still dying? And I, I got what you were saying, but I want to kind of, I want to end a postmortem because we're a headline society. So all we saw was, you know, Barry Weiss, I'm over COVID, I'm over COVID, COVID's done. What, what, were, you, what were you getting at? Well, of course I wasn't, and I would never want to diminish the unfathomable losses that people have had. And we're, it's a horrific once in a lifetime pandemic. Millions of people have died. There's nothing I can say that will undo that tragedy. And the, especially for, for people who are in families that have lost people. So if that got lost in what I said, you know, I, I would never, ever want to diminish that in any way. What I meant when I said that I'm over COVID and I had sort of spent the previous few weeks and continue to reporting on um, and working with, you know, doctors and parents who are sounding the alarm on the sort of invisible victims of this pandemic, mostly kids, some of whom have spent their entire lives behind masks um, and the unbelievable harm that these draconian policies have done to the people who were least vulnerable to this virus is a story that I think is just starting to be told. And um, that's what I was getting at. I was getting at the sort of theater of it, right? If I walk into a, if I walk into a restaurant and I show my vaccine card and I'm doing, showing my papers and I have to wear my mask, but then I sit down at the table and then for four hours, I'm laughing, I'm drinking, I'm eating. Yeah. What, what is that? It's, 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 it's nonsensical. It's illogical. And that's just, you know, that's a luxury to go to yeah. a restaurant. For the parents who have children who have been home for the majority of two years who are poor, who have one iPad, you know, that they're sharing between four kids. My sister's a public school teacher in Pittsburgh in a majority-minority school where the majority of kids are on school lunch programs. I know from her what those kids are suffering through. through. That is learning loss. That is emotional growth. That is socialization. They will never get is, back. Is the Barry Ever. Weiss formula, and it's a brilliant formula, because what you just articulated, nobody can argue with. But if you if you had said, instead of saying, I'm over COVID, which then leads to this, it, it, it's a lightning rod, and it leads to this back and healthy back and forth. You know, I, there's, there's so much with COVID that is just hypocritical, and I want to talk about that. And is it deliberate? Is it just, is it, is it, is it, um, do you realize that that's the stimulative way to get the conversation going? Whereas you're saying the exact same thing, but yet you label it um, with with Tabasco sauce. It's funny. Um, yeah, it's television. I, mean, I always say that it's television. Right. It's only TV. <laughs> it, like this right. is an hour. You know, I can give right. you a three minute answer. You know, when you're on Wish a show like Bill right. Maher, you're like, I, I, yeah. It's like you have 45 yeah. seconds to say the thing. And you want to say that in a way that is going to be memorable. And, you know, I hope that in saying the thing I said, getting the response that I got, I really believe that I hopefully broke open a dam in the public mm -hmm. conversation about it. Look at Michelle Goldberg, you know, progressive New York Times columnist, former colleague. On the Monday, she was, you know, by name criticizing me. By the Friday, she had a column saying, Take kids, take masks off yeah. kids immediately yeah. the first second we can. That was in the span of a week. So I think that there's sometimes an important role to play to say the thing that everyone is thinking. Yeah. You know, do you, do you know how many conversations I've been in with people? They're like, I am so that's over it, COVID. That, that are, is actually so how people say your it. Brilliance, that's it. You, so I think my so I think my my brand, going back to the original question, is I'm saying the thing out loud and in public that yeah, people say that, in private. That, that, that it's is pretty simple. And it's the and it what it does is it unmasks that there are nuances and two sides to things and where that wouldn't come across. And it do, it does hype this up. Where do you get your bravery from? Because what you do is very brave. 
where did that come from as a kid? I know you grew up in Squirrel Hill, a Jewish suburb of Pittsburgh, and, and you had to live through the... It, no, Squirrel, Squirrel Hill's in okay, the city, you, but yes, you, everything you else had is to, right. And the synagogue, the, the Tree of Life synagogue that you attended as a kid, which you obviously, and you, you, you talked and written so much about how that affected you, affected all of us, but obviously you in a more personal way. Um, where does your bravery come from? I'm not brave. Yes, you are. No, no, no. You've, my, you've, my ancestors were you've, brave. No, I, I'm not saying you're you're storming Here. a hill in Afghanistan. Um, and there's there, there's different, you know. <laughs> yeah. But you are for what the world that we live in, that you and I operate in. You are very brave. Here, here. Here's the answer to that. When I think about like, what is the worst thing that's going to happen to me? Right. What's the worst thing? I'm going to have to leave my job at a fancy newspaper. I'm going to get ratioed on Twitter. Maybe I'm going to lose some of my friends who aren't, weren't really my friends to begin with. Maybe I won't get invited to some parties. Okay. Like, I can live with all of that. And the reason is because, and, and this, is, this is just the way that I grew up in my family, which was deeply um, grateful honestly, to, to feel like I am the luckiest Jewish woman that has ever lived in all of human history, ever. Like to be born in America, to be born in a time where gay marriage was legalized, to be living in a world where I could walk into the New York Times wearing a Jewish star and walk out wearing one, you know? And, and like, that is a reality that was unimaginable yeah. to my grandmother, unimaginable, let alone my ancestors that came from Europe. And so I don't know why I like I'm able to hold that in mm -hmm. my mind so clearly. Maybe that's the thing, but I genuinely am. And I think most people, and it's understandable when you are getting so much incoming, like human beings are not built for this amount of incoming, like information and rage and love. Like it, it's just, it's so much, right? We're meant to like live in more <laughs> close knit villages, I think. We're evolved to that. And now all of a sudden we're connected to all human beings all over the world at every second. It's not natural. And you can feel very, very overwhelmed, like an onslaught by it. And understandably, when you're sort of feeling that, I've had, I'm saying this because I've used to, you know, I've, I, I've, I've been there. Like first time I had a bad tweet that went viral, mm -hmm. I didn't want to get out of bed for the weekend. I wanted to hide under the covers. And then you kind of remember, wait, hold on. Who am I? What am I about? What is the purpose of my life, right? It's like a cheesy question that mm -hmm. I don't think that many people answer. And if you have those things very clearly in your mind, these are my values. This is what I'm living for. This is what I'm willing to sacrifice for. All of a sudden, everything else becomes much more clear. And you're really able to do things that are perceived as brave. I'm really curious if I met 13-year-old Barry Weiss. Uh, how you, 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 are, you, are <laughs> nerd. you are such, were you a nerd? I, seventh grade was a bad year. Like, I, was this thinking? Was this all? Was this all percolating? <laughs> like, if, if you were at if you were no. at a bar mitzvah and everybody's talking, or, or were you? <laughs> and I'm like there with my little notebook. <laughs> were you, were, yeah, because it's it, your mind. I'm so fast. You have such a fertile, uh, just inquisitive. Just it's out of all the people I've met. And the first time I met you on Morning Joe, I was I was very taken with you. What? Um, so I can't I can't picture you as a as a kid. That's so funny. Um, I was. Like I was, you know, I'm the oldest of four girls. So I'm very much an oldest child. I, you know, type A, wanted my hair to be sure, like, a certain way, did all my homework. Girl, I was yeah. a good girl, you know, very much. Um, and what, you know, ha happy, like, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I grew up in such a lucky, beautiful yeah. way, you know, a family that genuinely loves each other and, you know, even now, and even when things have been stressful in my career, I think this is another part, just going back to the question before, is like, how do you do what you do in public? Well, because you have such a deeply yeah. rooted private life. And my that's my wife, Nellie, and that's my family. And I adore them more than anyone else. Like, it's like, would I rather go have dinner with a fancy person yeah. or my sisters? Yeah. There's no question. So I think that's another big part of it. Um, but no, I was, I was, you know, totally a good girl, wanted to 
please my parents, you know, all the things that I'm sure, you know, make no. me look like a tryhard now. Well, I Barry, was a tryhard back then. Hard because you're doing a great job and I'm a big fan and we need more voices like you out there. And I'm going to say it again, you are very, very brave and keep up the good fight. Thanks so much, Donnie. Thank you for having me. You got it. Stay well, okay? I really thank everybody listening today. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Barry Weiss. Uh, she is fascinating. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. So rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get them. And also watch our videos on YouTube and please subscribe and also leave your comments there. We'll see you next week on our panel. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject and then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.